Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. This is our seventh podcast of fall semester 2020. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined here today by IC Assistant Director Marie-Laure Oscarson and special guest Marlene Hansen-Esplin, Assistant Professor of Interdisciplinary Humanities here at BYU. Her main research areas are translation studies and 20th and 21st century U.S. and Latin American literature. And she is the faculty advisor for AWE, A-W-E, A Women's Experience. She is also the mother of five children, an avid crossworder, and a vowed fan of international cinema. Welcome, everyone. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. This week, we are discussing two Latin American films that struggle with issues of reconciliation. And that is the IC theme for this week. Our Mothers, directed by Cesar Diaz, is a 2019 film from Guatemala that follows the professional and personal efforts of a forensic anthropologist to find, exhume, and identify victims of his country's 30-year civil war, a dirty war that ended in 1996 after taking the lives of as many as 200,000 individuals, mostly Mayan Indians. The second film is one of my favorites from South America, The Milk of Sorrow, 2009, by the Peruvian director Claudia Llosa, niece of Nobel Prize-winning author Mario Vargasosa. This film is set in the contemporary moment that follows a young Quechua woman, an immigrant to the capital city of Lima, who continues to suffer the effects of the vicious uprising of the Maoist Shining Path guerrilla movement in the 1980s and 90s, and the military's often brutal retaliation. Our Mothers and The Milk of Sorrow, I might point out, offer a great pairing. Both films question whether their protagonists can overcome individual and familial trauma. Both give special attention to the suffering of women during times of war. And both are part of a recent flourishing in Latin America of films that strive to tell the stories of the region's many indigenous communities. Fair warning, though, it's difficult to talk about both of these films, especially Our Mothers, without giving away some spoilers. So consider yourself warned in case you prefer to see the films before listening to this podcast. And Marlene, I, I want to thank you in particular for coming on. And why don't we start with Our Mothers, sure. uh, which is the film that you most want to talk about. And I'm hoping that uh, maybe to start out, you can give us just a bit more context to the historical events that form the basis of this fictional film, and perhaps your opinion of the ability of the film to represent those events. Sure. I I lived in Guatemala in the summer of 2003, and that was my first very cursory introduction to Guatemala and to the very complicated history of the Civil War. In uh, some of my graduate school classes and in my reading since, I've, I've gained a better understanding. But what we can safely say is that it was this drawn out and extremely violent period in Guatemalan history and a still a very raw and recent past. Over 200,000 Guatemalans were killed or forcibly disappeared in this war that raged from approximately 1960 to 1996. And, and I think we can, again, safely say that 200,000 is a conservative estimate. An estimated 83% of those killed were indigenous Maya. In addition to those that were killed, there were villages that were razed, uh, buildings demolished, crops and drinking water that 
were ravaged. And uh, you see that women bore a different brunt of this experience than many of the men who were killed. So the women often, uh, the women were more likely to be survivors, but as survivors have had to endure the ongoing traumas of a past that includes much death, rape, and um, and it's it's it's, it's a, as I said before a very uh, raw history. And I think that it's just now, maybe in the 2020 2019, that I think artists authors are are becoming more comfortable. Uh, talking about some of some of the traumas of the Civil War, though, you know, as I mentioned before, this war has gone on since the 1960s, and there have been various truth commissions and historical clarification commissions that have been instated since you know the 80s, the the 90s, and uh, various trials in 2013, and again in 2018, which is the um, time period of the film. Great. You know, one. I, I think I want to come back uh, to some of those issues about the uh, truth commissions and and trauma sure. in telling stories. But I, I was hoping that maybe you could tell us to start off with something about the importance of the title, "Our Mothers," "Nuestras Madres" in Spanish. Right. The protagonist of the story is a young man, um, yeah. but uh, searching for his father, and yet the the film has this uh, feminine title. So how do you see the play between masculine and feminine uh, playing out within the film? And maybe uh, talk about the importance of this uh, male protagonist and his mother as well. Yeah, it's really interesting, the shift that takes place in the film. You have, as you mentioned, a Ladino or non-Indigenous westernized male protagonist who's primarily driven in his search for his father. And yet the film is titled Our Mothers. At the end of the film, and this is a spoiler, the protagonist shifts to basically giving up this search for his father and uh, undertaking the work of exhuming the bodies in a village. The, this task he's undertaken at the request of, of an indigenous woman, Nicolasa, Nicolasa Sik. So the focus shifts as a narrative strategy from our protagonist and his search for his father to these various mothers, Nicolasa being perhaps the most emblematic of these mothers. Nicolasa also, it's another sort of interesting reversal. She's, she's an infertile woman and yet she's the most emblematic mother of the film. So she in a sense is a mother and caretaker of the dead in this film. She's wanting to exhume and have some recompense for the dead who she takes care of. And and there's also this wonderful moment in the film, and I assume we can talk more about this, uh, this montage moment where we get these photographic stills or shots of, of various indigenous women um, wearing their beautifully woven huipiles. It's probably the most sentimental moment of the film, but here we get these close-ups is tender close-ups of, of various indigenous women, presumably mothers. Yeah, I like that scene as well, and I want to come back to it. But I did want Marilor to jump in here, because I know that as assistant director of IC, Marilor, that you're always very interested in making sure that we select films that will tell women's stories. 
in front of and behind the camera. And I was just wondering about your take on uh, on this particular film and how it includes the feminine. So, oh yes, this interesting shift that Marlene explored between the search for her father that turns into exhuming stories and bodies from the past and a truth that had been buried for for years. And so this search, as you said, turns to as well her, his own mother, Ernesto, who I have to mention that I, I so not, not being a, a Spanish speaker, accents for me in Spanish, uh, I do not hear them. But I understand that a Spanish speaker right away could distinguish between the two main actors, Ernesto and his, his mother, who are both Mexican actors, and the rest of the, the cast who are from Guatemala. So we can we can tell that they were in exile and that they've come back to Guatemala. A lot of Guatemalans have, have left their home country for safety reasons. And now they're coming back and exhuming the, the past. So yes, the search for the father is is shifting to a search for the mother. And then we find out the truth about Ernesto's conception and um, the truth about his father and those those stories that um, were buried for years are finally to the light. And it's not only a personal story narrative, but as well, it's the narrative of a whole nation. Yeah. Through, through those actors. And pointing to the the scene that as well was so touching of these indigenous women in those beautiful uh, traditional uh, clothing that are just looking at us, looking into our soul and and knowing a little bit more about their experience, I, I was able to connect with them. And I read that actually the cast for this film is they're not actors. There are people who live in the village that is portrayed and they're telling the stories that I'm not saying that there is not a dialogue that has been written and constructed, but uh, those stories are very close to their own experiences. Great. And uh, Marlene, we kind of started talking about this importance of uh, the term testimonio in Spanish. Yeah. Um, a testimony or to uh, tell uh, someone's truth that has been a, a genre in Latin American literature, at least since the times of Bernal Diaz del Castillo, right? right? But that also clearly in contemporary Guatemala can be seen in the voice of the Nobel Prize winning uh, writer and activist uh, Rigoberta, uh, Rigoberta yeah. Menchu. And I was just wondering if you might talk about about this film and its connection to this long tradition of trying to tell truth through personal witness. Sure. I, you know, I was thinking about this very question and, and what was perhaps most interesting to me is what the film does not try to do. And the the film in a sense uh, skates by on this uh, guise of being fictional, right? I mean, on the one hand, uh, the director, as Mari Lor mentioned, brings in, several non-actors, right? But he he very willfully blurs the lines between documentary and fiction. And and one of the controversies surrounding, say, Rigoberta Menchu's narrative is that people have taken her to account for including some experiences that didn't happen to her directly, right? That happened to say someone else in her aldea or some others that she she knew and then the counter to these criticisms is is the question 
well, you know, are these experiences any less true, even if they didn't happen to her? And so I feel like the this film safely skirts some of the authenticity questions by adopting a semi-documentarian or documentary format, but then still, uh, I think, embellishing or an indulging in some fictional accounting as well. Yeah, I mean, this is a, the testimonial genre is in a sense never ending. As you get the sense in the film, there are several more mass graves probably to to be unearthed and um, many more stories to be told. So this is a genre in literature and I think as well in film that has a particular resonance to Central America and and to any country that is uh, still grappling with human rights abuses and searching for restitution and recompense after after a period of historical trauma. I, I know that uh, you've pointed out that uh, there were at least a, a few critics of the fact that this film won the Golden Camera Award at the Cannes yeah. Film Festival, which is, tell me if I'm explaining it wrong, it's the award for the best first feature film that a director makes. And so at least some people thought that the film may be a little bit flat in its photography and its acting. I don't think that you agree with that criticism. I certainly don't. But I'm wondering if uh, between the two of you, you might uh, comment on some of the uh, filmic qualities that this film uh, provides its audience. Right. I mean, I, I think, well, we, we already mentioned that moment where we get all the beautiful vignettes of the indigenous women. And, and there's, all, there's another moment in the film that I thought was similar where the film does a, a nice close-up of Christina Ernesto's mother. And uh, there's a similar sort of care in her depiction. And, and there are also these sweeping vistas of the Guatemalan countryside that I think are, are well done. So there are these uh, more, I guess, photo-worthy moments in the film. But I, but I think that, again, maybe that's, that's not the point of the film, right? I mean, the point of the film is the narrative about recompense and restitution, as we mentioned earlier. Um, and what about the acting? I mean, I, I'll let Mari Laura weigh in, but I feel like that, that it's a deliberately sort of flat acting. And so it's hard to, to demand anything flashier from the actors, Flat in one way, but I, I must admit that I was completely moved by the, the women of the village and their gaze and um, their stories. So, yes, the subtle line between the documentary and the feature film that, that um, wants to be um, more like fictional, it's just it's really blurry for me. And so, OK, so it got it got that reward at Cannes and as well. Belgium picked it as their entry to the uh, for the Oscars uh, in the best international film category. So so this is an interesting thing. This is a very international project as such. The filmmaker is from Guatemala but lives in Belgium. He's Belgium based. He yeah. has a Belgium citizenship. This film was produced in Belgium. It was made like a Belgium film with a Belgium crew. It was shot in Guatemala and in Spanish. And yet, Belgium elected it as its film to represent its country at the Oscars. So um, there's a, a real hope for immigrants 
everywhere in the world making films and looking at, at cinema as well as this international project. So as such, everything that Marlon said and then this global kind of like project that's searching for justice and truth, unearthing the, the past, uh, I, I, I think this is a great project that deserves the awards that it received. Yeah, and I like I like that you've indicated that it's a it's a Belgian submission, right? I mean, because I, I don't want to. I, I think it's it's not fair to pigeonhole this film as just a Guatemalan film or a Guatemalan story, right? I mean, that this search for recompense, this attempt to achieve restitution, is a much more universal thematic. Great. Before we uh, pass on to uh, The Milk of Sorrow, I just want to point out that uh, I I agree with your comments about the strengths of this film. I was thoroughly entertained by it, and uh, I was a a bit surprised by some of the criticisms of the film. One of the shots that I actually liked, uh, or the shots that I liked the most probably, were not the ones that were shot in the countryside in the indigenous communities, but those shot in Guatemala City that were almost always gloomy, shot from a vehicle, claustrophobic. And there's one scene at the um, municipal cemetery where they're doing a grave uh, or a dig of unmarked graves, right? People who have died in this violence, where the above ground tombs in which people are buried, which is very common in Latin America, that they're above ground, right? That the little boxes that that contain the bodies, that those uh, structures tend to blend with apartment buildings in the background, mm-hmm. almost as if you've got this continuation of life and death, death and life, past and present, uh, that I thought was it really understated, but very well done. And then there's a, a, a dialogue between Nicolasa and uh, a, a Mayan person who's been hired to protect some private land where the husbands of these women have been buried. And she tries to gain access to that place. And there's this just kind of back and forth. It's really flat, right? And I can see how somebody who doesn't know Mayan culture or indigenous cultures in the Americas might interpret that acting as being off key. I actually thought that it was perfect that if we were hearing that actual conversation and this were a documentary, that that's exactly how those two individuals would speak. And it was flat, without emotion, and repetitive. And uh, my experiences in in the countryside of Mexico and Guatemala would suggest that that was a very real, it it felt real to me, this this full movie did, in fact. And I, I found as well a lot of beauty in the forensic work of those archaeologists. Right. The way they were holding those bones, it was like precious. And so showing that life and death is still something that um, we are dealing with, with poetry and beauty and very carefully as well. I've, I've read that the the bones that the actor was, was holding is actually a skeleton that was reconstituted for the films, um, for the film, but all the other bones that we see in the film are real remains. And so there is a, a solemnity as well about this film that is very important. Yeah, I think those are really smart comments. And uh, what I'm dying to know is about the reception of the film in a, in a, from the Guatemalan vantage point, if the sort of gloomy portrayals of the city and, you know, some of these, these lines, like, you know, to, to, what does he say? Ernesto says, to live in this country, you either have to be crazy or drunk. Like, how has the film been received in Guatemala? And I confess, I don't, I, I don't have a good, good answer there. Like, is, is this an expat film and would it be perceived as such? 
you know, it, and if it is an expat film, are the truth narratives, the testimonials within the film any less valid? I, I think that's an interesting question and one that, because I'm not prepared to answer, <laughs> I think we'll have to leave for another time. But I do think it uh, gives us a really good segue into our next film that we'll spend a little bit less time uh, talking about. And that's called The Milk of Sorrow or La Teta Asustada. And as I already mentioned, it was uh, directed by Claudia Llosa. It's a film that um, was very popular around the world, but has been quite controversial within its home country. Uh, there are many Peruvians who love the film and believe that it ac- accurately portrays a reality in the aftermath of the Shining Path uh, guerrilla uprising, but that it also has some kind of strange components to it. And so you do get, if you read the criticism of The Milk of Sorrow, you will find critics who do not like the film a whole lot, and those like me who really do. For those of you who haven't seen the film or don't know much about the context, in the 1980s and 1990s, there was one of the most violent and brutal leftist uprisings in Latin America when El Sendero Luminoso, the Shining Path, a Maoist movement, became active and started working within the cities and within the countryside and had a tendency to believe that if you aren't with us, that you need to be convinced. They were violent and brutal, especially among the indigenous communities. The problem came in particular when the military uh, sent soldiers into the highlands of Peru, especially around Ayacucho. And it turned out that their, their attempts to combat the violence of the Sendero Luminoso was no less violent and also tended to affect the indigenous populations. The Milk of Sorrow tells the story of Fausta, a young Quechua woman who has moved with her mother and other members of her family into the suburbs of uh, Lima, Peru, to escape the violence. And now years later, the young uh, Fausta, probably in her early 20s, is still dealing with the malady of trauma, physical and psychological trauma that she believes she has inherited from her mother who was raped years earlier while she was pregnant with the daughter who now cares for her just before she passes away. And so the trauma of the film is actually a trauma that is intergenerational and across decades. Some people have have assumed that the milk of sorrow, the belief that you could pass trauma from mother to daughter was something that Claudia Llosa invented. It's not. It actually came from the investigations of a, of a healthcare anthropologist by the name of Kimberly Thaden, who in 2003, uh, 2004, right in there, published a book called Intimate Enemies, in which she discovered that belief and that was a real medical malady among some of the indigenous population. And so that's kind of the cornerstone of this film. And years later, and in Peru, are individuals able to find the ability to overcome violence and forgive and move on? Marilor, I know that you've seen this film, and I was wondering some of the things that you, as somebody who didn't know a whole lot about this uh, history, what you felt and, uh, and saw within The Milk of Sorrow. I was moved by this film. I loved it so much. The acting of uh, the main actress is just wonderful. 
I need to point as well as well that the milk of sorrow is as well like a disease. That's what they explain in the film that it it robs the child of their soul. And yet, Fausta is the most alive and human character that I've seen on screen. I mean, the most. You know, there's a lot, but um, it, she's she was really touch really touching to me as such. So yes, she's carrying the distress of her mother, a trauma that is just like portrayed in the film through song. Uh, the music in the film is amazing. It is this beautiful singing music that probably Fausta was born with. And as the mother died, that's the last words that she heard from her mother on her deathbed. And it tells the story of the trauma and it tells the story of the people. And it's something that is very much alive in the film. At some point, we get in the head of Fausta and we hear this music and then she gets the courage to sing it to her employee. So we go in this film from people... I guess I can make it larger, right? And not just see a personal story, but as well the, the story of a people and the violence of their past, but as well the exploitation of the present as Fausta becomes an employee to this pianist who actually steals her music, makes her sing. Fausta needs money. She needs to bury her mother and uh, she needs money for this. And so the pianist promises this necklace to her if she sings her music. And then she steals the music. And then she just rejects her when she's afraid that people will find out where the source of her new accomplishment, musical accomplishment is from. So this this really obvious exploitation that, that she suffers. But yet, it is a story of empowerment. And, and Doug, you're welcome to jump in uh, with me. I really felt that uh, Fausta is empowered as the woman, even though she's shown as very scared and dealing with, with trauma. We see her making choices in her life. We, sh- we see her changing as well, even her name. And please correct me, but I read that it means lucky in Spanish. Is oh. that correct, Fausta? Uh, I'm not sure if it means lucky in Spanish. Um, oh. Okay, so maybe something to check. Connect to the, Germ- uh, the Germanic significance of the name. Right. Okay. Because I, in, in my search for, the, for her name, I read that in Italy, Italian and in Spanish, it, it means lucky. So I just, you know, I went with this and this mother who named her daughter something else than, than the trauma that, that she lived with. So a story of empowerment as we see her grow from the superstition and the poverty of her circumstances. She decides against her uncle's will to bury her mother right there where they live. She wants to take her the body back to where her mother wants to be buried with her with her deceased husband. She wants her hung uncle to respect her choice. We did not talk about this plot that she's carrying a potato in her vagina as protection against rape. And she tells her uncle, let me deal with this. She's a very much empowered woman. She's making choices. She takes a job, even though she's known to not be able to walk by herself. And we see her fear of the other many times. She takes a job where she has to be alone. And she celebrates life despite of, of everything. And I think she comes out as a a great conqueror of her, of her fears. We see her carrying the dead body of her mother at the end. And it's a, it's a very visual representation of what Fausta has been doing all her life, carrying that burden, that trauma in, in her years of, of childhood and, and youth. 
I would agree. And I think that uh, this film is um, a very positive reflection on the possibility of Peru to move beyond this violent period. I see the uh, con- the ending of the film, particularly in that light. I will be doing a faculty lecture on this film that will also be available on the ic.byu.edu site uh, in a few days. If somebody wants to uh, tune into that as well, I'll talk a little bit more about the geography of the film, uh, this uh, dry and almost uh, infernal-like geography that uh, these people inhabit but it becomes a space of hope and possibilities for a better future. Um, but I did want to uh, go back to your comment about uh, music and sound. One of the interesting things about the protagonist, Fausta, is played by Magali uh, Solier, who was an indigenous woman, Quechua woman, who was discovered by Claudia Llosa while, I, as I understand it, she was washing at the river. And uh, Claudia Llosa saw her and thought that she would be great to play in some of her films. And as it turns out, she's not only an outstanding actress, but she's a beautiful singer. And so the music within this film is all sung by her. And uh, Magali Solier is a person that you can buy music from online. I bought uh, one of her albums on iTunes a few years back when iTunes still existed. I'm not sure where you would find that now. Um, but if you like Andean music, uh, this movie will be special to you. Um, the film is also one that was the Peruvian nomination for the Oscar for uh, Best Foreign Language Film. It didn't win that year, but certainly I, I think this is one of the best South American, Latin American films in recent years, and that viewers will really like it. And although you mentioned that one point, you know, that uh, she does have that strange uh, way of trying to keep from being uh, violated, raped like her mother was, and that she places a tuber in her vagina. And it's an important part of the film. And it's one of those things that has also caused some people to uh, react uh, with a little bit of, uh, of animosity towards the film. But that, although it's not a typical practice, it is something that uh, that had been found to have been used by some women who uh, lived near some of the military complexes that were set up in the Andes to protect the Quechua villages, but in the end became centers of violence where uh, where soldiers would actually physically violate the women in the area. And so it, it, as strange as that a little bit of knowledge is, that little bit of, of thing that's within the film, it is based in reality. And whether you see it as a real or a metaphoric representation of the violence against women during war, I think it's very effective to be able to uh, help us understand the trauma that Fausta and that women in general in war zones continue to experience. I would I would add a word to all all this that it's true that this film is is very serious and deals with with a topic that makes you shiver but it's as well very humorous and I would invite our students to learn from this film learn about the history of Peru uh, the history as well of Guatemala for the other film. But it, in The Milk of Sorrow, look for the humor. It's just, it's all over. And you mentioned the landscape and it's so dry and there's nothing that grows. And yet 
Life is colorful. Life is a party. There's always music going on. There are so many weddings that we see and enjoy. We see people bringing their gifts to the wedding and they are dancing to the music, making every piece of furnishing that they're offering to the new couple dancing. So this is a, it is a dancing home that we're building together as a community. And so I, I would really invite them. There's so many things that made me smile because the contrast of the dry, very dusty landscape, the very, very serious story, the trauma, and yet life wins. And so this film is, is full of hope. And I, and I really hope that that's what our students will, will gain from this film. Knowledge but as well that they will come out with a sense of life is victorious and love, especially because it's, it's all these weddings that are happening in the film, love wins. I'm thrilled that you um, came to that conclusion because I see that too in this film and believe that despite its heavy tone, that people will really like it and see it as a very optimistic conclusion. Uh, for those of you who have been to Peru, just to let you know that this was filmed in an actual community on the outskirts of Lima, just to the south of Lima. Uh, the community is called Manchay, and it was uh, started during the 1980s when the Sendero Luminoso fighting was going on, and it was uh, established mostly by Quechua Indians coming down out of the highlands. And it's uh, built right up against uh, the ocean uh, to the west, of course, and the mountains to the east. And it's right up against the ruins of Pachacamac. And so there's not a lot of place for it to expand, but it's a desert landscape where it almost never rains. So it's marked by a millennia or two or three or five of drought. So the drought is very visible, but it's also marked by human uh, habitation, right? So that landscape becomes very much a metaphor uh, for the difficult situation in which these individuals and families work to, to return to life, to construct lives, to build better lives. And, and I think the, the fact that it's a very real geography is part of the beauty of it. And those of you who have been to Peru, to Lima, to Manchay, to Pachacamac, will love uh, the setting of this film. I just wanted to jump in really quick to to note the contrast between the two films. That while there are many points of similarities about the strength of women, about the emphasis on kind of restitution and reconciliation, the Our Mothers is is so much more grim. And I was thinking about Doug's comments about inherited trauma. There's a, there's a particularly disturbing moment in Our Mothers where. Without spoiling too much, Ernesto learns that his father is not who he thought he was. And um, the film even goes so far as to suggest that he may have even genetically inherited this propensity for violence that one of the uh, encounters he has with with a woman that he knows from a bar may, may not have been consensual. So he may even be perpetuating this, this uh, cycle of violence toward women. Um, but this is this is this is a kind of subtle point in the film. And even though it's such a grim point of, of contrast, I feel like the film still has a narrative about how healing testimony can be and how healing um, acts of exhumation or arrested um, or or recognition of the dead can be. And and it points to the 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 everyday heroism of of women or those who have survived torture and uh, trauma. 
there is at about this Marlene, there is a scene between the mother and the son when the son is really looking for his father. And about that point, he found out that the father he thought he had is actually not his father. And so he questions his mother and he says, do I look like him? Yeah. Are my eyes like his? And her answers are so good and full of hope, even though she can't lie to him. No, you don't have his eyes. She can't say that. But she says, you see things like him. When he asks, is my mouth like his? She, she answered very beautifully, you speak like him. And so it was more like he maybe inherited some, some biological things from his, his um, biological father, but he inherited a strength and a beauty of soul from, from um, the father who was married to his mother. Does that make sense? It makes sense. But but there's hope for that generation, for those children who are the product of violence and trauma and rape, that their mothers are still able to look at them with love and they're very much seeing in them the good and the wholesome. Yeah. And I love how she tells him, you know, you were the only good thing to come out of my experiences, right? Mm -hmm. She does. Great. Thank you very much. I, I think that uh, our viewers will notice that uh, we really liked these two films and think that you will as well. Thank you, Marlene, for being our special guest today, Marie-Laure, for being a regular on this program. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today on From the Booth. Tune into our podcast each week for insightful discussion of the film streaming at IC with a variety of specialists. Current BYU students, faculty, and staff signing up with their BYU Net ID can stream Our Mothers and the Milk of Sorrow this week on BYU's Hum Media platform. For instructions, visit ic.byu.edu. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at Brigham Young University and is supported by the College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, and our sound engineer, Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Until next week, keep streaming.